you have a copy of God's Word, I do invite you to turn with me this morning to Genesis chapter 3. We will be spending our time in the first seven verses of this chapter as we continue our walk through the book of Genesis. We are looking at the first 11 chapters of this book, a section often called the primeval history of mankind. And a lot has taken place in just a little bit of space, hasn't it? And yet the story continues to move at a rapid pace and we reach a point here, a point of no return, a point where everything will be different after this text today for humanity. If you were with us last week, you will remember the end of chapter 2. It in itself is a pinnacle moment. We read about marriage and what it is supposed to be and what a blessing it is for mankind and ultimately how it's a picture of Christ and His love for the church. But as we look this morning, just merely one verse later, the honeymoon comes to an abrupt halt. And I don't think it's accidental that we transition immediately from the high, the pinnacle, the glory that is the end of Genesis 2 into the depravity it is of Genesis 3. For aren't we often quick to turn from the God we love and instead chase after our own goals and desires? We will see this morning by doing just that, Adam and Eve set the course of human history onto a dark trajectory, one that would only be reconciled by God Himself stepping in and paying the price. This is an important lesson for us in society today. Sin separates us from God. It is why we must understand our own state if we ever hope to have forgiveness in this life and in the life to come. With all of this in mind, let us turn our attention to a very important passage of Scripture. They're all important, but since this is the one for this morning, it is important. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. I'll be reading the first seven verses. This is the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows when you eat of it your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, for they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The grass may wither and the flower may fall, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. 
and he has promised us that it will accomplish everything he has set out for it. Let us again go to the Lord in prayer now and ask his blessing upon this time. Dear Heavenly Father, if you do not descend upon us now, although we may hear your word, we will not receive it. It will not transform our hearts. It will not call our sin to account. It will not sanctify us. And so, Father, we plea with you this morning through the power of your Holy Spirit, open us that we might receive your word and ultimately receive you through it. A dark day in history was this day that we have just read. And yet, in it is hope beyond all measure for what it took to reconcile it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us the ability to hear and to understand your word this morning, to see the depths of the sin of this moment, and help us to long for the Savior that came and conquered it. We pray all of this in Christ Jesus' name, our Savior. Amen. It often can be hard to trust multiple sources of information. You can take almost any topic, it does not matter with what it is, and you will find someone that passionately argues for this topic, and as many people arguing against the same topic. This becomes especially difficult if you are a third party and you don't have knowledge at all on this topic and you're trying to get an unbiased opinion. Personally, I find this the most annoying when I'm looking online for product reviews, something that I'm considering purchasing or something I think will benefit my life, and I'll read a great review and then I'll read a terrible review and then I'm stuck. What do I do? Which one is right? Who is more trustworthy? If we can get so all course based on something as trivial as product reviews, how much more will this affect us when it comes to philosophical discussions and discussions of our very lives in the direction of it? It really is true that our lives can be changed permanently by the voices we choose to listen to and those we choose to ignore. Robert Frost reminds us in his poem, The Road Not Taken, that the path we choose really does make all of the difference, and we will not be the same. And that's what we see in our text here this morning. The serpent, who we know to be the devil, interjects his knowledge into the world of Adam and Eve in order to sway them from the knowledge of God. Two roads diverged in a yellow wood, and sorry, I could not travel both. Two paths before them. And we see three consequences of the path they chose. First, I want us to see this morning that temptation raises questions about the Word of God. Temptation will always raise questions about the Word of God. Secondly, I want us to see that temptation raises doubt about the integrity of God. It not only attacks the word of God, but also the integrity of God himself. And then finally, we will see that the knowledge of good and evil brings alienation from God 
and from one another. Temptation carried out, temptation acted on, led into sin, will separate us from God and will separate us from each other. We will see each of these in our text this morning, and it is vital that we do so for our own sake and the sake of our heart. So let's begin at the beginning. Let's think about how temptation challenges the word of God. And our text begins with an introduction of the serpent. We would call this creature a snake. Moses tells us something important about the serpent. This creature was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And Calvin believes this is a legitimate commentary upon the creature's serpent. He's not commenting at this point directly upon Satan. Now, this bears resemblance to Satan, um, that comment. But Calvin says this, The innate subtlety of the serpent did not prevent Satan from making use of the animal. For since he required an instrument, he chose from among the animals that which he saw would be most suitable for him. Thus, to carry out his plan of deceiving Adam and Eve, Satan came in the form of a serpent, the most crafty animal that God had made, and he comes to them. Now, let's pause a minute to try and understand who this Satan is. This is the first time we're introduced to this um, character, and I I think it's best to understand um, a little bit of motivation behind the decisions that are being made. And I admit, the difficulty here, the Bible does not give us a thorough commentary on Satan. He's not mentioned in the creation account. And he's only really referenced here and there throughout Scripture as the great deceiver, the one who is against God and God's people. But looking at just a few passages this morning, we do get a clear picture of who he is and the kind of motivations he would have to deceive Adam and Eve. John, in the book of John, John describes him as the father of all lies. So John speaks of Satan as the father of all lies in this debate um, Jesus is having between him and the Pharisees. He says this, You are of the father, your father, the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. John 8:44. Paul warns the church in Ephesus, "Put on the armor of God, lest you fall prey to the attacks of the devil." Ephesians 5. "Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Peter gives us yet another description. 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We could also explore the book of Revelation, probably the 
one place that Satan is greatest detailed. This book gives us commentary on this fallen angel who seeks to wage war against God and against God's people, but will ultimately be thrown down, cast into the lake of fire, and face the totality of God's wrath and judgment. What we find by these passages and the many more that we could talk about in Scripture is that Satan is against God, a fallen angel who waged war from or against God and God's people. He continues to do so today in vain. This is why he's here in the garden. He's here to deceive mankind and to draw them away from their Savior. And how does he do it? By raising question against the Word of God. He challenges the Word of God. And note how he does it. He comes to Eve. This is no accident. Eve most likely did not receive the instructions to withhold from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from God. She would have done so from her husband. Satan is breaking the authority structure. Man was to be over his wife as caretaker and protector. We know this as we related last week how Christ demonstrates his relationship with the church. Husbands are to be over their wife as Christ is over the church. This would have been in effect in the garden. And so who does Satan go to but to Eve? And Satan uses this as an opportunity to bring about confusion. Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? This is a brilliantly phrased question. We do a great disservice when we underestimate the devil. And be very careful, Christian. We are very prone to this today. Oh, he's never going to get me. I'll never fall into that sin. I won't be tricked into that. I won't make that mistake. Want to bet? Did God really say? Simple words. It, and it sounds sincere. It, it, it sounds like an honest question. But there's a little bit of doubt in there. Did he actually say that? That you can't eat of any tree in the garden? See what he's doing? He's trying to create confusion in the mind of Eve. He wants her to question the word of God. And in some ways it's successful. For when she replies, we find her confusion is already beginning to happen. We may eat of the tree, of the tree, fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve is making a claim that God never said. She has interpreted God's word and come to a conclusion that was not laid out before her. God never said, do not touch the fruit of this tree. God said, don't eat it. And with that, Satan has caused her to ponder these things. She was most likely looking at the fruit as she was making this declaration. Even now, she could have been wondering what it would taste like. Just a little bit of doubt. A little bit of sleight of hand. And her mind is already racing away from the safety of God and away from the safety of God's instruction. Now, let's ask a helpful question here. How should Eve have responded when Satan spoke to her? 
What should she have done? We know what she did was wrong, but what should she have done? She should have fled immediately, on the spot, without question. She should have gone to her husband for clarity, or even better, to God himself, and asked for help in this situation. I'm confused, God. Help me. Adam, I'm not sure I'm getting this right. Can you clarify what God said to me? This must be, this is a great lesson for us in how we must handle temptation. Because over and over again, the biblical writers have to remind us, flee from temptation. Jesus will take it so far, Matthew 5.29, it is better if your eyes cause you to sin that you take a spoon and you scoop them out and you enter the kingdom of heaven blind then you go to hell having all of your faculties. That's pretty gross, isn't it? And yet that's how clear Jesus is on this statement. If you're in a state of temptation, get away from it as fast as you can. Do whatever it takes. Pay the price to leave. For your soul is at risk. We cannot take this point lightly. Look, to make it even more practical... If you are tempted with the use of pornography, get rid of your devices. I know we don't think that we can live in this world today without phones and technology. Sure you can. It may not be fun, but it would be far better to enter the kingdom of heaven without your devices than go onto the path of hell with a full technological arsenal. Same thing. If overconsumption of alcohol is your temptation, don't go to the Mexican place on two-for-one margarita night. Stay away. You can make it at home. It will be cheaper. Tacos are very cost effective. You can have a whole platter of them. And you won't be tempted to sin. For it will be far better for you to save money, stay home, eat a sandwich if you have to, and enter the kingdom of heaven than to walk down the path of hell with a margarita in each hand. We must flee temptation. We are not strong enough to handle it. We are not powerful enough on our own to resist it. We are not Christ. After Satan has brought doubt into the word of God, we will see secondly that he will tempt Eve and Adam to doubt the integrity of God. We see this in our second section. And this is a very effective strategy. Uh, We see this best used in politics today. If you can't defeat the message, defeat the messenger. It doesn't matter if what they say is true. It doesn't matter if that's the best idea. It doesn't matter if it's the right path. If you can cause doubt and worry and a little bit of mistrust in the person that said it, you can throw it all out. And they've been using it very well for years and years and years. We as a society have been trained that if we do not like the character of someone we can get rid of, or to use modern language, cancel everything that they say. This is what Satan is trying to do here in our second section. He has moved from attacking the word of God, the content of his message, and now is questioning God himself. Can God be trusted? Should you listen to him? That's what he wants Eve to wonder next. This is why he says, you will not surely die. For God knows when you eat of it, 
your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil? Satan is not being passive anymore. He's not playing coy with his questioning. He's not being subtle in his remarks. God is wrong. You did not understand that correctly. You do not have the best knowledge in this situation. Even better, you'll be like him. He's withholding from you. Not only is he not telling you the truth, he's withholding something from you that you need. Matthew Henry comments on this verse just how wise Satan is. Satan teaches men first to doubt and then to deny. He makes them skeptics first and then by degree makes them atheists. And the worst part about Satan's declaration is he's partially true. Adam and Eve do not die immediately upon eating of the fruit. And God himself states that they have become like him in their knowledge of good and evil. What he offers them is partially true. Satan is not dumb. He will sell us half-truths and false compliments in order to sway us away from God and God's plan all day long. Now, why would having knowledge of good and evil be an improvement over their current condition? Remember what the end of chapter 2 stated about Adam and Eve? They were naked and not ashamed. There was openness in their relationship. There was joy between the husband and the wife. They had God and they had each other. They lived in a perfect garden and it subjected itself to them. What more could they want? They didn't even realize that they didn't have knowledge of good and evil until Satan mentioned it. This is a new concept to them. This is something they didn't even know was possible. But that's all beside the point. Rational, reality, truth is beside the point. It does not matter. I believe that the Bible is clear on this. The 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. The 10th commandment is very clear. You shall not desire what the Lord has not given to you. We could add in here for the sake of Adam and Eve, and you shall not covet God. If you need it, he's given it to you. If you desired it, if you've asked for it, it's been provided. Even things that you have not asked for. By the way, Adam didn't ask for marriage. God gave it to him, and he's like, wow, this is great. God, this is so cool, thank you. Paraphrase, of course, but that's really what he says. Satan loves this idea of you need more or better. And this is a direct assault upon God. For God has provided you with what you have. We have prayed in this service already today, give us this day our daily bread. Unfortunately, many of us pray that and then we go out into the world and we live like God give us this day the next 30 years bread. We want it all and we want it all right now. When for the totality of the people of God, it's been give us this day. Manna fell for one day at a time except the day before the Sabbath. God has taken care of each of his people that day and then the next and then the next, and then the next. Because what happens? What happens in the life of Israel every single time when there's success, when there's victory, when they can accomplish, when they can store up? What do they do? They turn their back on God. 
Jesus says in Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. But we are often anxious about tomorrow. We often do want what we do not have. And what it really comes down to when we make those claims, when we have those thoughts, when we live in those fears, is God, you're wrong. We're really saying to God, you're wrong. You're not giving me what's best. You don't know what's right for me. I'm not sure that you're going to provide for me. We go back to the garden. We go back to the garden. It's an assault against God himself. And this culture around us only seeks to entice us. In fact, if we take an honest look at it in the American culture based on this, aren't we trained and conditioned that products don't last? That your life is incomplete unless you get this new vacation, this new device, this new vehicle, whatever have you. What you have is not enough. Think about it. If we shifted our narrative, how quickly would businesses close? I'm good. I don't need it. I've got all that I need right here. Why would I buy your product when what I've got works? We have conditioned ourselves, and this world has been expertly crafted to cause us to want more. And all we're really saying is the same thing that happened in the garden. God, you are wrong. You're not going to die. You're, in fact, you're going to be like him. That's his goal. Satan wants us to desire to be God. And he reveals it. Be like God. He wants us to believe it is not enough to trust God and rely upon Him. We should be in total control. We should be the deciders of our fate. We do not need God for what we can do can take His place. How is this working out in our culture, though? Has quality of life improved as people have strayed further from God? Are people happier? Are they more content? Are they more giving, charitable, loving, and righteous? Becoming little gods of their own, have they got everything they wanted? No. No. What we have learned is that by giving us what we're asking for, we found ourselves depraved beyond all measure. We see it in our own lives, and we even see it in the response here. It starts back in the garden. Once again, this is nothing new. Knowledge of evil brings alienation from God and from one another. Look with me at our final section to see the conclusion to this great temptation. And for many of us, this is the part of the text where we want to bury our, our heads in our, in our pillows or in our hands and go, I can't watch. I don't want to see it. Just like we do in many a movie. Let me know when it's over. I hate to tell you, but when you open your eyes, this is still the reality we live in. Just a few words of enticement. Eve turns her back on God and follows the wisdom of the serpent. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. The fruit of the tree was not an apple candied like a skull as we see in many Disney fairy tales. It was not rancid or foul. The tree was beautiful. The fruit looked tasty and somehow had the appearance of wisdom. God did not forbid the tree because it was detrimental to their health. God forbid the tree 
because it would bring death to all who partake. But it was pleasant. Because of this, the woman ate, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And please do not miss this. Adam was to be the head of the relationship. He was to shepherd his wife. Eve ate of the fruit while Adam let her do it. He didn't stop her. He does not call her attention to God's command. Instead, he remains silent. He fails at his job of protector and then follows her into the sin of consumption. And aren't we prone to this one today? Don't we often let others engage in risky behavior first before we go down that path? We love letting someone else, you try it, go ahead. And then, man, maybe I'll give it a shot. This comes from the garden. This comes from our own nature to risk someone else's life, well-being, safety before ours. Selfishness is what it is. And does Satan's promise live up to everything they had hoped for? Did they get what they wanted? Well, in some ways they did. And in some ways, absolutely not. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Immediately, where there was openness and honesty, there is now embarrassment and shame. The situation did not change. The fruit did not remove their clothes. Eating of the fruit brought about self-consciousness. It brought aware brought awareness of pride, fear, and doubt. And in this moment of shameful realization, what do they do? They try to fix the problem themselves. We've spent all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 talking about what God has done, how God has provided, what God does is good and right and what we need. And here, in chapter 3, man finally says, I can do it better myself. They get what they wanted. They became little gods and try to fix their world. They get to provide. But you see the foolishness of their ability to provide. They sew together fig leaves for loincloths to cover their shame. Think about it. How inadequate would this have been at covering and protection? I mean... It was probably a tropical climate in the garden, so we don't want to think about what it was like outside. But even then, how you feeling? Fig leaves. Feel pretty covered? Man cannot undo his sinful condition. Man cannot provide covering for himself. This is true literally for Adam and Eve, and is spiritually true for everyone, starting with them and moving forward. Man is incapable of living up to the standard of God. In fact, man will only succeed in creating more problems for himself as he tries to now live in a sinful world. This is why, brothers and sisters, we need the gospel. We cannot cover our own sin. Our eyes have been opened. Where there should be honesty and sincerity... There is now fear, worry, doubt, and shame. Why did Adam and Eve cover themselves? Were they ashamed of one another? Probably at some degree. But Lord willing, 
if we're back here next week and we continue on in the reading of chapter 3, you know what they were doing? They were hiding from God. They knew that their relationship with one another has been influenced, but they really knew that their relationship between them and God has been forever changed. Are you hiding from God today? Are you trying to cover up mistakes in your life and the life of others? I will tell you in love, you look like someone trying to sew clothes out of fig leaves. You're not hiding anything. In fact, trying to cover up sin in this way is only revealing just how sinful you are. But there is hope. Paul tells the church in Romans 5, 17 to 18, For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Your only hope in this life and in the life to come is to place your trust in Jesus Christ. Come to Him. Seek His forgiveness and trust upon His finished work upon the cross. His one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men who believe. Sin brings separation. Separation in our earthly relationships and separation in the relationship between us and God. But Christ brings restoration. He restores us before God and allows us to live openly before one another. Be wary of anything that questions the word and integrity of God. And if you do fall into temptation, repent, turn from your sin and follow him, for he is your only hope. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we confess our nakedness before you today. We know our state. We know how often we have tried to clothe ourselves, <laughs> and even that, Lord, is by using leaves that you provided. We couldn't even provide our own failed attempt at covering. You had to do that. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for trusting in ourself. Forgive us for listening to the words of Satan. Forgive us for doubting who you are and the truth of your word. Forgive us for questioning and challenging your integrity. You are a God who has fulfilled every promise he has ever made. You have not failed us nor forsaken us. You've promised to be with us until you come again. And even then, you will make all things new. And you will put us with you in your kingdom forever and ever. Lord, we need you. Adam and Eve, you really messed things up in the garden. But Father, may we honestly assess ourselves and come to the conclusion we do too. Each and every day. Help us trust you now. Be with us in this time. In Christ's name, amen.